Good morning. It's great to be together today as it is every Sunday. Two questions that we all wrestle with, <clears throat> asking from our earliest of ages. First, a question of being, and secondly, a question of doing. Who am I, and what am I supposed to be doing in life? This is a question that is asked from the earliest of ages, and we never really cease to ask ourselves, who am I and what am I supposed to be doing? The world usually answers these in three different ways, the shoulds, the goods, and the happies. What should I be doing? This is what you should do with your life. What are you good at? What you're good at? Your competencies. Do the things that you're good at. And, and then thirdly, the happies. What makes you happy? Do the things that make you happy. The shoulds, the goods, and the happies is how those questions of who am I and what am I supposed to be doing are most often answered. But as we come to our text this morning of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 15, the Word of God gives us the answer to these questions. See, the shoulds, the goods, and the happies change as we age. What we should do or what we were good at or what we were happy in was as different when we were children as it is as we age throughout adulthood. But the Scriptures give us a unified statement of who you are and what you're supposed to be doing regardless of your age. It's not based upon your shoulds, your goods, or your happies, but it's based upon this understanding that you are the people in Christ as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. You are the one who has been set free. You have been set free to do what? To run after Christ, to stand firm in the faith, and to run after Jesus with all the resources that he entrusts you with to become a reaction in your life and how you interact with others. This is our calling to be firm, to stand firm in the Word of God, to await the coming of the hope of righteousness, and to run after Christ. We've been set free in Christ to follow after Him. That's who we are. We are the people who have been set free from the bondage of the law and lawful living to try to earn your way up to a right standing with God. We are the people who have been set free to run and follow after Jesus. We might say another way that sounds contradictory, but it really is incredibly accurate and true. We have been set free to follow after Christ. The Scriptures call us to stand firm and also to run hard. To stand firm in, in the status that you've received as a child of God in Christ. Stand firm in that. Anchor your way in that. And yet, run fast. Run hard for all the rest of the race that the Lord has marked out for you on this earth. And for every one of us, it has different turns and different hills and different paths we're going to take. But all of them come with the same idea of running after Christ in every one of those races. So as you have your text of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 15, if you don't have a Bible, please do take a pewback Bible in front of you to follow along. We'll be reading actually another text in addition to this as we walk through, so you'll be quite helpful to be able to, to have a scripture to look at. So let's gather in as we look at these two components of standing firm and also running passionately, freed to stand firm and to run after Jesus. First and foremost, as we understand those two questions of our identity, who am I and what am I called to be doing? Well, who am I? Well, disciples, first and foremost, have been set free to stand firm and await our hope of righteousness, verses 1 through 6. Disciples have been set free to stand firm and await our hope of righteousness. 
we understand two components of this. What do we do while we're awaiting our hope of righteousness? So while waiting, what are we supposed to be doing? First, we look at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to notice that while waiting, you and I are called to beware of systems that promise righteousness by lawfulness, like different baited hooks going by a different types of fish mouth. There are hooks of lawfulness that say, if you just do it well enough, if you do this or do that, you'll receive this new status They're enticing to different types. And let's look at what he continues on in verse 1 through 4 as we build on the sermon series verse by verse. Paul writes, reading from the English Standard Version, For freedom, church, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, remember this ceremonial act with the Jewish law, he says Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. James 2.10 echoes that. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And as you recall last week, it's important that we touch on this, the previous verses. Paul mentioned two lines. You have the line of promise on this side that God promised Abraham to bring a blessing to the nations among a number of other promises, but that one in particular And it comes through this line of Abraham and Sarah. And they have a child, and his name is Isaac. And it continues on, and he ties it to a place. And that's the Jerusalem above where Christ is seated. So you have this line of promise. And he contrasts it on the other side, as you recall, with the line of man's might. The the line of man's lawfulness, we might say, or efforts. And he commits it to Abraham in Hagar. And they have a son named Ishmael. And that system is tied to what he puts with present Jerusalem in the first century. He marries it to the Judaizers, those that are trying to keep the law, those that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and that are coming into the churches, and they're trying to get them to do the same, to abandon Christ, or at the very least, to add the law, the Old Testament law, to their abilities to be made acceptable in a congregation and ultimately before God. So he has two different paths What he says in the very last verse of chapter 4 is he says, you and I, we, brothers, we are children of the promise. We're of this path, not of this path. So remember that. That's why it was important that we covered that before we walk into verse 1 to understand exactly the fact that we're to beware of systems of lawfulness and lawfulness. These things will not make us right with God. He says in verse 31, brothers, we are not of the slave but of the freed woman. We have freedom in Christ and the one who has set us free. You've already kept the law, Christian. You've already perfectly kept the law. You realize that? You have been tempted in every way, and yet you were without sin. Right now you're thinking, does he know who I am? Yeah. You are one who is in Christ. You've already kept the law perfectly because Christ has perfectly kept the law. Jesus is the only one who can keep the law, and he has perfectly kept the law. All of its demands and all of the motives necessary to keep the law. He kept the law not even for appearance, but he did it for the glory of God the Father. He kept the law perfectly, and as one who has turned from sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... His righteous standing has been given over to your account. 
You are acceptable in Christ. You are already lawful in Christ. So all that you and I can do by going and saying, that's great, but let me add my efforts to keep the law today to that, all you'll actually do is spoil it. So you remember, we receive Christ's merits that he's had on the cross. We receive his standing that he earned for us on the cross. He paid our debt on the cross. His righteousness was given over to us, and our sin was placed upon Jesus on the cross. Our lawlessness was put on Jesus on the cross. Every lie, every sick thing, every sin, every transgression we've ever committed, Christ perfectly bore that debt. So we are already before God. We are lawful. Therein, the attempt to keep the law today will only lead to lawlessness because we're not qualified to add to it. He says here, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As children grow and bud into teenagers, there's this, there's this statement that's given. I'm not sure what the age is, but this statement of let me do it. You of you with parents, you ever hear your kids say that? Let me do it. What age did that happen? Let me, let me do it. Me do it. Me. Me do it. I still haven't got to that point in my life yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Let me do it. It's a statement of independence, right? It's a statement that says, and we celebrate it, I think, as parents, when our kids begin to show signs of independence, even as though that must be frustrating at times. Let me do it. This is a good thing when it comes to being independent. But that same thing exists in our hearts before God. There is this bit of pride and pull yourselves up by your Buddhisms in our hearts when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Christ, his sinless life, make right death on the cross and glorious resurrection, his ascension and his coming again for his bride and to make all things right. There's a part in our life that says, Jesus, that's great, but let me help. And that's the, the allure of lawful living to earn a right standing with God. We don't earn it. We receive what's already been accomplished for us. So let's understand here at the very beginning, that's what Paul is really trying to communicate, even though the American dream didn't exist yet, as we understand America, of course. All of us love an American dream story, a person from rags to riches to pull themselves up and then become contributing members of society and charitable members of society. That speaks to us, all of us. We're, we're appealed at that story. But an American dream applied to your standing with God will not earn yourself a righteousness with the Lord. It will earn yourself, not pulling yourself up to the Lord. It will pull yourself down to the eternal pits of hell, to the eternal lake of fire. American dream religion doesn't work. It's a rebellion and it's an offense against a holy God. Lawful living will not make us right with God. Only what Christ has done. So while waiting, beware of systems that promise righteousness through lawfulness. In verse 1, he puts this very clearly for us. We have both the truths of the Christian identity. So in, in grammar, to bring back maybe some nightmares for us, we have the indicative and then the imperative. This is who we have as Christians. This is the unique mark of what it is to be a Christian compared to all other, all other religious belief systems. The indicative, the descriptor of who you are. It's the announcement of who you are now in Christ. You are forgiven. You are clean. You are freed. It's who you are. That is truly who you are. 
And because that's who you are as an adopted child of God by faith in Christ alone, you are now commanded the imperative to go and live as a freed one. To live as a freed one. He says to stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We've been freed to stand firm. And not to be enticed by lawful living, thinking that will make us right with God, because you're already right with God. He says stand firm. Paul uses that saying all over the place in the New Testament. Stand firm, stand firm. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love, as we looked at at a men's retreat. First, uh, Philippians 4, 1, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He does it multiple times in, in 1 Thessalonians as well. Stand firm. That's your true standing. Stand firm. We can't add anything to the gospel. That's the good news. That's why it's good news. Because you don't have to accumulate a resume to get accepted. Our resume of all of us is simply our letters of sin that Christ perfectly paid on the cross. That's why it's truly good news, because we're all qualified to hear it. So we give the gospel without any discrimination to all people, because it really is good news for all people of all ages and all backgrounds. That's what makes us wonderful news, and that's why we're called to await our hope of righteousness that's coming. He warns them, though, beware of the allure of lawfulness where you and I might be enticed to want to add ourselves to what Christ has already accomplished. And the only thing we'll add to that is lawlessness because Christ has already kept the lawfulness, and that's why this is such good news for us. So disciples have been set free to stand firm and await our hope of righteousness while waiting, beware of systems that promise righteousness through lawfulness. And secondly, verses 5 through 6, while waiting, believe that we stand firm through the Spirit, by faith, working through love in Christ. We're going to unpack that, verse 5 and 6. Faith, hope, and love. You've heard of faith, hope, and love. What chapter do you think of when you hear faith, hope, and love? 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Well, here we have faith, hope, and love in a text you're probably not as familiar with. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5 through 6, faith, hope, and love. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, it counts for anything, but only faith working through what? Through love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because in heaven, when the perfect comes, when we're right with the Lord, when Christ comes and sets all things right, there will be no faith. Because we will not walk by faith, we will walk by sight. Faith has an expiration date. That's why love is greater than faith, because faith will not exist in the kingdom of God. Faith will not exist in the new heavens and new earth one day. There will be no faith. It'd be like standing here this morning and being like, I have faith that I'm here this morning. We'd be like, what? That's great. Because you're here this morning, right? We see it, right? We see each other. We're right here. We, you don't need faith. It's, it's here. We're here. And that's why love is greater than faith. What about hope? Hope is a good thing. 
Hope is how we process through grief. As believers, we have a hope of a newness of life. Hope. Hope of the, of the promise of things yet longed for, but in the new heavens and when Christ comes and makes all things right, we will not have hope. Because it's not a promise deferred, it will be a promise realized in Christ. That's why love is greater than hope in that sense. Because love, is, as we understand it, is this sacrificial offering made perfect by Christ on the cross for us. That's true love. Love of God so loved the world. He so loved us that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived his lawful life to lay his life down for lawless ones like us. That's the good news. There won't be hope in the new heavens and new earth because it will be hope realized. They'd be like saying, I hope I made it to church on Sunday morning. You'd look around and say, wait, there's no hope. I'm here. It's here. And that's the goodness we have in Christ, that there is a hope that's realized in who Christ has made us and called us to be. We are described as the ones here that, are, that eagerly await. Did you see that? We walk by faith in Christ Jesus as we eagerly await. That's one word, and it's a descriptor of who we are. You as a believer are the eagerly awaiting ones. That's your profile. How would you describe yourself? Well, here you can add it to your list. If somebody ever asks you, how would you summarize yourself in a few words? Well, I am one who eagerly awaits. I am an eagerly awaiting one. What are you eagerly awaiting for? My hope of righteousness. My hope of righteousness. Like a child counting down the days or the hours or the seconds until they can open up their, their presents under the Christmas tree. Like a senior who has senioritis that cannot wait to walk across the stage. Like a, like a military spouse that can't wait for their spouse to come home from deployment. Eagerly awaiting. That's who we are. We're waiting for our hope of righteousness. As a matter of fact, look over to 1 Corinthians 15. As we see a more full picture of the hope of righteousness, that's ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll, we'll just read 50 through 58. We won't read the whole chapter. But if you were to, to take time this week to walk through a chapter slowly, in addition to our few verses we take every week going through Galatians, if you get the week to week, this is a great thing to be able to have on your, on your radar. You can see what we're singing next, uh, next Sunday, what the text we're going to be walking through. But if I were to encourage you to read another text this week, it would be 1 Corinthians 15. Just walk through that text very slowly. And you know, if, I could, if you had enough energy, go to chapter 16 as well. Because he marries the conclusion right to chapter 15. Rolls right into it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 58. As we think about the hope of righteousness, righteousness that we have as believers. So when he says back in verse 5 of Galatians... Chapter 5, for, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What is the hope of righteousness? Here's the hope of righteousness that's coming for you. So read this like a child waiting to open up the present under the Christmas tree. Here's what you're waiting for. Here's what you're waiting for permission from mom and dad to be able to go and to open. Here's the gift that's waiting for every one of us in Christ. Here's the hope of righteousness that's wrapped for you, believer. Verse 50. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, flesh and blood, it cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. He unpacks it further in 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the sayings that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be what? Be steadfast. Stand firm. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't make a difference when it comes to turning your perishable body into one that will never perish. It means nothing in making you righteous before a holy and eternal God. Like a moth cannot be in the direct presence of a vicious bonfire, so too our perishing bodies cannot be in the presence of a holy, righteous God. It's bigger than us. Only faith working through love, that is the love demonstrated in Christ, will make us qualified. So believer, the charge is this, rest in Christ. Before we go on to the second idea, rest in Christ. This text is meant to say, anchor yourselves. Anchor yourselves in the goodness of the gospel. There's not something more coming down the pike your way. Rest in the gospel. Anchor your feet. And take joy in a broken world. Take joy in the midst of a broken world. Take joy even though you and I have broken pasts. And take joy even while our physical bodies are breaking down every year. As you gain more aches and pains in your body, look more and more forward to the hope of righteousness where one day in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will raise the perishable putting on the imperishable. And you too, if you're alive when he should come, your perishing body will put on imperishingness. And we look forward to that day, the hope of righteousness. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. We'll be doing that for all eternity. So as a body of Christ, as we demonstrate sacrificial love for one another, we simply practice what we will be doing for eternity. Perfect practice makes perfect. But for the believer, we have received perfection in Christ. So first, we've seen that disciples have been set free to stand firm and await our hope of righteousness. And secondly, disciples have been set free to run well, set free to stand firm and set free to run well and lay aside every entanglement. Set free to run well and lay aside every entanglement. So if we want to run well, what do we have to do? If we want to run well, what do we need to do? Well, verse 7 to 9 says, Denounce those who detract from the gospel message. Or rather, I've summarized 7 to 9 to say, Denounce those who detract from the gospel message. If we want to run well, denounce those who detract from the gospel message. Like a great athlete, a great scout is going to look forward. A great soldier is going to know their enemy. 
We need to denounce those who will detract and are detracting from the gospel message. Verse 7 through 9, he says this. This sounds a lot like Hebrews 12, so I'm going to read Hebrews 12 right afterwards. I won't give you time to flip there, but so you'll know where I'm going. Verse 7 and 9. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And he hits this proverb. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, tell me if this sounds familiar. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Christ. Run the race. And the author of Hebrews says what? Lay aside every entanglement that clings so closely. Paul here in Galatians 5 says the same idea. He wants names to pop into their mind. He wants faces to pop into their mind. He wants them to call their shots. Identify the people that are causing them to stumble in their faith. Identify the people that are trying to distract them and take their eyes off of the Christ and put their eyes upon themselves or the law ultimately and their ability to try to keep it. Who hindered you, he says. Who intentionally cut you off? Who tripped you or who shoved you down if we're applying it to a race? Who wants them to identify them so they can say, listen, they're not the ones who called you. Jesus Christ will never call you to abandon the gospel. Yahweh will never cause you and call you to walk away from Christ. So those people that are seeping into the congregations and calling them out, he's saying they play for a different team. Can't you see they have totally different jerseys on? Earlier in this letter, he presents it like a dividing line in the sand. He marks across the line and says, this is the city of God and this is not the city of God. These individuals that are coming and causing you to stumbling, they're on a different team. And what he does in chapter 5 is he doesn't make a dividing line, he digs a dividing moat. This moat outside this giant castle. He says, here's the city of God, they're infiltrating they're coming across the moat. They're sneaking in. They're putting their enemy gates at the tower, and they're coming into the city of God. And they're coming in not to steal simply the treasure, but they're coming in to lead you across the moat to the other side, outside the city of God. These people, he says, they're not of us. They're not called by Christ. They're different. The arguments may be powerful, but they serve a different God. They serve the God of this age, regardless of the rhetoric. And his hope for them, his so what do I do about this, is this, cut them off. Cut off their influence from your life. Do you understand they're changing you? And he uses this parable, this proverb, and he says, this proverbial saying, I should say, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, but in Mark 8, you can write that down, we won't read it, but in Mark 8, Jesus calls the Pharisees leaven. He calls the Pharisees and Herod himself, he calls them leaven. Because though small in number, their influence is great. Like yeast makes bread rise. A little bit of influence. What started with somebody in the church taking them in has now infested the congregations across Galatia. 
And now it requires extreme surgery to cut them off before it spreads too much. And he warns them, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. A little false teaching. Or a little adding to the goodness of the gospel. Spoiling the whole congregations in Galatia. Cut them off. Now there's numerous different applications we can make here, but just one, simply, if you're a teenager or a child, know that your parent and grandparent, they fear for you. One of their fears for you is who the influences you'll have in your life. One of their largest anxieties is the friends that you'll keep. Because the friends that you keep, if they're not operating from a biblical worldview, have the ability, if they're pouring into your life in an influential way, those friends can steer the entire next season of your life. That's one of their fears, just being honest. And by the way, parents and older siblings, aunts and uncles, those little teenagers, those little children know, likewise, who is the greatest influences in your life. They know who you're listening to. They know what has influence over your life as well. The warning is given to all of us. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. So beware, denounce these things, denounce those who detract the gospel message. And, and finally, verses 10 through 15, destruction awaits all who disturb the gospel runners. Destruction awaits all who disturb the gospel runners. Let's take it in one big chunk, 10 through 15. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you, he will bear the penalty, whoever he is, but if I, brothers, Paul says, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted then? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and that's not happening. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bide and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There will be a penalty for those not being in Christ. And Paul's fear for the church is that, again, they will not cut off those who are disturbing them or troubling them, depending on your translation there in verse 10. The worst case scenario is this. Paul's understanding and his warning and his statement to the church in Galatia is this. Listen, in Christ, because you're in Christ, you will not abandon the gospel. You're his. You're not going anywhere. But he says to the congregation, but if you do, but if you do, you'll devour yourselves, just like they will. The judgment of God will be so severe, not only on them, but if you cast your lot with them, if you swim across the moat with them, you too will be devoured by the wrath of God. And you will devour one another. And his warning to them is that the wrath of God will come upon them. And if you want to go with them, the wrath of God will come upon you. So it's a statement that destruction awaits all who disturb the gospel runners. Because those who will convert, those who will leave the faith, they don't simply leave, they'll become evangelists for a false gospel. That's what's at stake in the church. It's like a virus converting, 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 consuming, consuming, consuming. The gospel that Paul preached, he said, is a stumbling block. Do you remember that text in 1 Corinthians? That the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jew, 
and foolishness to the Greek. And Paul says, so what happened here because the Judaizers are preaching a false gospel that's suddenly a stumbling block for you. And you're not to have any stumbling blocks because you have the truth. But look what's happening. Open your eyes. See how serious this is. And he uses this serious and unsettling language. F.F. Bruce translates it like this. I like this. F.F. Bruce, he says, If only those who are upsetting you would make a complete job of this cutting business, then we should have no more problem with them. I won't go into greater detail. This is a family service. It seems like we cover the most grotesque texts anytime we have a family service. But you can do a little more studying on that text. But I do want us all to understand is that Paul takes this so serious that he says it's better that somebody would make themselves a eunuch so that they would not lead anyone else astray, that it would stop with their generation, that it would be to cause a little one to stumble. And friends, little ones aren't only the little ones. You and I in Christ as children of God Regardless of your age, you are a little one. Jesus says in his own statement, in his own words, that it's better that one would take a millstone and tie it around their neck, a millstone, 200 plus pound rock, and be cast into the sea than it will be for them on the day of judgment before Christ. So the warning that's given is to say, stand firm in the gospel, and don't you leave, and if you do leave, Take a millstone with you because that's your fate. You see the seriousness of, the, of, of abandoning the gospel. This is not a scare tactic. It is a warning given with motherly love for their children because he loves them. He warns them. He gives that statement towards the end. If you really want to go keep the law, here's what you should do. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to keep the law, the law is summed up in loving God and loving neighbor. And so he tells them, understand this. He tells them, fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ. Run after Christ. Stand firm and run after Christ. And you will accidentally keep the law. So it's confusing at first here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you will accidentally keep the law. The law is summed up by loving God and loving neighbor. By fixing our eyes upon Christ as individuals and as a church family, we will accidentally keep the law, not to earn a right standing with God, but because we've received a right standing with God as his kids. As we look to Christ, we will begin accidentally by the goodness and the power of the Spirit, the transforming Spirit in our life, the Holy Spirit, we will begin loving and serving God and laying our preferences down and loving and serving and forgiving our neighbors the fruit of the Spirit, what he's going to go to next, and we'll look at next week, is going to take root. And the church begins to accidentally keep the law of God, not to be made right with God, but because they are already right with God. That's the beautiful plot twist that's coming in the coming verses. The law will not make you right with God, but by the goodness of the grace of God, the transforming components of being renewed will begin to cause us to love God and love neighbor. That's the good news that we have this morning. That's the good standing. Set free to stand firm and to follow after Jesus. We think about our next steps. 
we think about our next steps. All are called to repent. This is an invitation to all of us. We're all called to repent. That's change of mind leads to a change of action. We're all called to repent, to turn, and to trust in Christ. Receive forgiveness and freedom that's found only in Jesus. Lawful living has already been done and is yours if you'll have Christ. Receive the status that's offered to us in Christ. I've summarized it in your bulletin in these different ways. The Lord's Supper is a public act of memorialization, examination, declaration, and celebration. Let's walk through those. As our servers come forward, I love Lord's Supper Sundays. I love them. Absolutely love them. Four components to what we're going to be partaking of as a church family. The first is memorialization. I'm sure you have probably been to a memorial service in your life. The body of, of the one is there, or you're at the graveside, and the ashes are there. And it is a humbling scene. We memorialize a Christ who lived bodily, fully God, fully man. And Jesus came and lived the lawful life we cannot live. He lived it perfectly. And he willingly, in obedience to the Father, had his body broken and blood spilled for us. He took our place. And we memorialize what he did for us, literally did for us. This is not a, simply a story. This is truth. It's what Christ did for you. He knows you in the depths of your sin. And for sinners like you and I, he laid out his life for us. And so we memorialize Christ. So it's a time of memorialization, but then there's a time of examination in our lives. We examine our lives. Say, Lord, is there any sin in my life? Is there any unrepentant sin I'm not aware of? Will you convict me of that? And I confess it to you. We examine ourselves as a congregation and say, is there, is there hardened unforgiveness in my life towards another brother or sister that I need to forgive as Christ has forgiven me? Or have I offended a brother or sister that I need to seek forgiveness because I have become a stumbling block for them in our fellowship? So it's a time of examination. But there's also, thirdly, a component of declaration that we are declaring publicly, not simply that Jesus' body was broken and blood was spilled, but that he has defeated death and he has risen again. So this is really a time of celebration. You'll hear that sometimes at, at, at funeral services. They'll call it a celebration service, which is really bizarre, right? Because their body is still there. It's hard to celebrate somebody that's dead. But King Jesus Christ, he didn't stay dead, did he? We're not partaking of a memorial service at his grave on the other side of the world. We celebrate. We declare that Christ, he is risen from the dead. And so we declare him publicly, unashamedly as a church body. We declare that we have a, a unity and an allegiance to Christ. So as we eat and drink in a few moments, realize that there's an understanding that just as we receive the offering that's given to us, as we receive these elements, so too it's like saying, I've come and believe in Christ. I'm united with Christ. I've declared myself one with Christ because of what he's done for me. I'm unashamed of that reality. That fourth component is celebration. We truly celebrate because the tomb is empty. We celebrate because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, observing what we're doing right now, fully aware of every one of us, fully aware of every crunch and every gulp as we partake of it as his kids in Christ. 
That's the warning that's given, that this is for those that have confessed faith in Christ. If you've not come to Christ, as this passes before you, before you take those two cups, do not take those two cups, actually. Let it pass. But let its passing, if you're not yet a Christian, be a reminder that this is an offering for you, that if you'll but turn and trust in Christ, he is yours in full. Receive the gift of life that's ours in his. So before we distribute and we'll hold them and we'll take them one, one together as a church family afterwards, uh, first with the, uh, the bread and then with the cup, let me pray for us before we distribute. Oh Lord, we give you glory this morning. We thank you as a church family that this is ours to partake in. We thank you that we truly have forgiveness in Christ, that Christ Jesus lived the lawful life that we have not lived, and in him we have true forgiveness of sins. We love you, and we unashamedly identify with you. Lord, use this time to bring even a greater sense of unity and joy in our lives. One day we truly believe we will receive glorified, resurrected bodies. As our bodies groan and we experience the brokenness of this world, we pray that you would help us to live under the reign that we have as your children in this world that desperately needs the good news, the broken body, the spilt blood, and the perfect act of redemption paid for us once and for all by Christ. It's in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.